Hey guys, and welcome back to my channel. I hope you guys are all having a great day. You can sign the petition and you can make a short phone call and an email. It's gonna make a huge difference. Jessica called, fearful and asking for her help. 10 days later, while family members held a search party in the neighborhood, it was her sisters who found her body near the 610 underpass, a six minute walk from her home. I, I did not see her being in a situation that would even enable her to make those choices. And literally the very first thing that came to my mind was she would never be caught dead the way she was caught. And that is the part I mean by consistent. I got involved in it because I saw the missing flyer on Facebook and thought to myself, that's weird. Like, people don't vote missing around here. With over 30,000 signatures on a change.org petition asking authorities to review her death once more. She was caring, and she always had a story to tell. She was really patient with me. She used to just let me hang out and feel like I was, you know, hanging out with the college kids, which, you know, felt really special. Her realness, like, she never judged. Never judged me, always would lift me up. She would always tell me I'm beautiful, if, I mean, just anything. Oh, Justin. Did they go and notify Justin? No. He's seen all the activity and all the neighbors outside. And he's seen all the cop cars. And he got nervous and he went to the police station. You know, you have people that never saw her and that she was already clearly alienated from her friends and from everyone else. In the months leading up to this project, we petitioned the office of Jason Williams, the DA of New Orleans, more times than we can recall. It's also been difficult to hear anything from the New Orleans Police Department, who still rule Jessica's death as unclassified. No suspects have been identified. Jessica wasn't just trash that was thrown away. Why did it take so long for the coroner to release her body? Next of him didn't give a shit about it. So you feel there is some type of cover-up. However small the cover-up is, it's been brushed. It is him. The only advocate for your family will be you. Do you think there's any alternative potential theories to what happened? No. My sister was murdered. On today's episode of Mile Higher, there are so many possibilities of what could have happened. The police did not help whatsoever. A case that first happened back in the 80s, Duncan McPherson. They already have their hunches, you know what I mean? Yeah, and like of course. You're, you're trying to dismiss every all this investigation yeah. they've just done. I mean, I think it is possible for him to have covered it up with the machinery and the fact that the machinery wasn't checked for so long. Well, at this point, we f***ed up, so it's going to look bad if we admit that we didn't do anything. They would have had to cover this up somehow. I don't know. Something is just, my intuition is telling me it was just one person. They drained their whole retirement savings to solve this case, basically, without any help. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 280. I am your host, Kendall. And I'm your host, Josh. And we are joined by our producer, Janelle. Hello. Janelle? What up? So today we're going to be looking at a case that first happened back in the 80s, late 80s. And this family has been through so much since then, trying to figure out what happened to their son, Duncan McPherson. They 
searched for him for 14 years. And thankfully, they never gave up because it's due to their efforts and perseverance that this case has gotten to where it is. But it's still unsolved to this day. I want to jump in and say this is another case where the police did not help whatsoever. And they made things did, worse. Yeah, they actually did make things worse because they basically closed it, said, hey, this is an accident. But the forensic evidence suggests otherwise. And they straight up did not do any forensic investigation into the suspicious death of this pro hockey player, Duncan McPherson, at all. And it doesn't just suggest foul play. I mean, there's a, yeah. It's without a doubt when you hear the evidence here. It's um, absolutely mind blowing. Cover up. Mm hmm. For sure. Which we've been cut doing lots of cover-ups here lately on Mile Higher. Hey, it feels I, like, but. I find cover-ups very fascinating. And that's what really needs to be talked about. Before we get into the case, though, at the beginning of this episode, you saw our final trailer for our documentary, 530 Days. It is coming out on December 19th to the True Crime with Kendall Ray YouTube channel. If you haven't heard, it's on the Jessica Easterly case. We flew down to New Orleans and filmed with her family for a few days. And we were just blown away with the corruption down in New Orleans and how this case has been mishandled for so long. Yeah, I think it will truly shock you. I think so. When too. you finally watch this and just, I mean, we were shocked. We were in shock the entire time we were down there. We were like, is this real? Is it really this bad? It's that bad. And it just, yeah. It, it's one that is very, very frustrating and will probably leave you very angry, which we hope you'll then turn that anger into action. Yes. Because this 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 family needs justice. But we have really poured our heart and soul into this project. We have been working on it since the beginning of the year and honestly started the process even before that. And then things got slowed down due to COVID and my pregnancy and everything. But we're so excited to finally share what we've been working on with you all for so long. Absolutely. I'm excited for it. I'm a little nervous just because we put right. so much into yeah. it, you know? Yeah, I think I think people are also excited and are going to love it no matter what. So I do too. It's going to be amazing. So yes, please mark your calendar December 19th on the True Crime with Kendall Ray YouTube channel. It's 530 days, a true crime documentary. Also, real quick, I just wanted to mention again, we are still matching donations to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children right now. You can donate through our campaign page, which will be linked below. And anything that you donate between now and the end of the year will be matched by Mile Higher Media. So take advantage of that because your donation can go twice as far. And another alternative you have to just donating to the uh, campaign link is going over to KendallRay.shop and buying some uh, National Center for Missing Exploited Children merch uh, that you've got going on over there. And all proceeds from that merch goes straight to this campaign. Also, if you know anyone else who's looking to make donations or would like to make a social media post and share the link, it would be greatly appreciated. We did really well with this last year, and we would love to make a really large donation again this year with your help. And thank you to all of you who have donated already. It means a lot. Absolutely. So Duncan Alvin McPherson was born on February 3rd, 1966 in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada, to his parents, Bob and Linda McPherson. He had a younger brother named Derek. Duncan had a dog named Jake and a girlfriend named Tara. And Duncan always loved nature, just like his dad. He was a spontaneous, free-spirited, and irresistibly charming person. He was also brave, and he had a fighting spirit, which helped him a lot in his career. Duncan was a hockey player, and he'd always just loved the sport. He'd been playing since he was a kid. 
But it wasn't just a hobby. It was his career. In the early 80s, he started playing in the major junior league hockey team, Saskatoon Blades, and he was a star defenseman. And he worked hard on that team, and it didn't go unnoticed. In 1984, he was a first-round NHL draft pick, 20th overall. He was drafted to the New York Islanders, and in preparation for his NHL career, he played in the minor leagues for the Springfield Indians, AHL, and the Indianapolis Ice, IHL. Duncan was a fighter on the ice, and this spirit earned him the nickname McPherson. One story from his time on the Saskatoon Blades shows just how accurate that nickname was. The Blades were set to play their biggest rival, the Virginia Pats, who just got an intimidating new enforcer. Now, I had no idea what an enforcer was. This was interesting to me, but an enforcer, or also known as a goon, has the unofficial role of intimidating the other team, basically fighting rather than point scoring. During an interview, the Pats enforcer said the score didn't matter to him. He just wanted to sort out Duncan. Duncan's teammates asked what he thought about these fighting words, and Duncan replied, I'll take care of him. Sure enough, as soon as the game started, Duncan went right to the enforcer and sorted him out. And his victory in this fight won him hometown hero status. But with frequent fighting comes frequent injuries. So Duncan was injured pretty often. And as a result, he was released by the Islanders. Though his career in the big leads, the NHL, was cut short. And this was no doubt a disappointment to Duncan, of course. But he handled it with a surprising amount of grace. In fact, he didn't want to use his injuries as an excuse. In a TV interview, he put it quite simply, quote, down in the minors, you play the best you can. And if you're not meant to be a superstar, well, there's nothing you can do about it. Here's more of what Duncan had to say. I guess they've kind of just had plans for me and uh, I never lived up to them right off the bat and things kind of just turned the other way. I just want to try getting away from here and see if hockey can be fun again. So as you can see, he just has a great attitude about everything. Duncan loved the game of hockey. He loved being on the ice and he loved his teammates, but he didn't like the organizations themselves, the business sort of side of the, the league and the team. He wanted to just play hockey and not deal with the administrators and all the politics. So now Duncan was considering other paths, like going to college to study biology. He was a nature lover, so this was a natural fit for him. Speaking of which, he dreamed of hiking the Appalachian Trail. He was able to complete this dream, but after he got back home, he came down with Lyme disease. He spent a long while recovering from this illness, and after he did, he was trying to figure out what his next move would be. One day, Duncan told Linda that he was approached by someone with an odd proposal. The man said he was a recruiter for the CIA and wanted Duncan to work for them. As if you remember, the Cold War was still going on in 1989, and hockey players could make it past the Iron Curtain. But Duncan didn't want to change his identity and separate from his family, but it was definitely an interesting offer for him. But a better one came knocking soon after. One day, Duncan got a call from a guy named Ron Dixon. He was a businessman from Vancouver who just bought a hockey team in Scotland called the Dundee Tigers. Ron had never met Duncan, but he offered him the head coaching job and a generous salary. Duncan was definitely intrigued, but this Ron guy was sort of a mystery. It was rumored that the name Ron Dixon was actually an alias, and he was kind of unclear about the specifics of the whole thing. Duncan worried that the guy was sort of a bullshitter and the whole thing was too good to be true. But he decided to take the job anyway. His start date was in mid-August 1989, and that left the first half of the month open. Duncan thought he would spend that time in Europe sightseeing and catching up with hockey friends who had also taken up jobs there. The plan was to fly out of Saskatoon on August 2nd, 1989. He would travel to Nuremberg, where he would stay with his friend, George Pasut. While he was there, he would borrow George's car, a red Opal Corsa. 
Duncan would stay with his friend Roger Corco in Fusen after that, do some sightseeing on his own, and then make it back to Nuremberg by the 11th at the latest. From Nuremberg, he'd fly to Glasgow on the 12th and make his way to Dundee, where he'd then start work. For the plane ride to Nuremberg, Duncan brought along a copy of the book titled Touching the Void. It's the true story of a mountaineer who survived a fall of a mountain into a glacier crevasse. Linda kissed Duncan goodbye that August 2nd, 1989, but she had no idea that this would be the last time she'd see him. By all accounts, Duncan's trip to Europe was going well. After leaving George's place, he stayed with his friend Roger as planned, and on the 8th, he left Fusen and drove south towards Austria and Italy to do some sightseeing. He was due in Nuremberg on the 11th at the latest, so this was a decently quick turnaround time to see the area before heading to Dundee. On the night of the 8th, he stopped to spend the night in Innsbruck, Austria, a world-famous ski town. And when he got there, Duncan decided to go snowboarding at the local resort, the Stubai Glacier, on the morning of the 9th. Now, Duncan was just a beginner at snowboarding, so he decided to head to the ski school and sign up for a lesson, and he also needed to rent gear. To get to the ski school and the gear shop, Duncan needed to take the gondola ride from the main parking lot up to the Eisgrot Mountain Station. So he rode the gondola, rented equipment from the Sports Shop 3000, and then met instructor Walter Hinterhosel at 10 a.m. Now, keep in mind, most slopes at the resort closed in June, but some stayed open year-round. Given the elevation and alpine climate, there's pretty much always snow, so skiing in August is still very possible, although the snow isn't as good. And the only slope open that day was the Schaffelferna. So they had the lesson, and then Duncan ate lunch with Walter, and then after that, he purchased a new sweatshirt from the sports shop because his ended up getting soaking wet during his lesson. Duncan took to snowboarding pretty naturally, though, and after the lesson, Duncan decided to do some snowboarding solo. He and Walter parted ways, and that was that. But after this, Duncan was never heard from or seen alive again. Now, meanwhile, back in Saskatoon on the night of August 11th, Linda woke up screaming. She had had a terrible nightmare and her cries woke up her husband, Bob, who tried to console her. And she told him, and this is crazy, something terrible has happened to Duncan. That is mother's intuition. On August 12th, Duncan failed to show up as expected for his flight to Glasgow. And Linda's anxiety grew significantly by the 14th. Duncan had promised to call her that day after he had gotten settled with his new job, but he never did. On August 16th, one of Duncan's hockey buddies called Linda and asked if she had heard from Duncan. She told him that she was waiting for his call once he got settled with his new job. That friend told her that he'd actually just talked to the team manager and Duncan hadn't made it to Scotland. And obviously, hearing this made Linda's stomach drop. Soon after this call, Linda went to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and tried to report Duncan missing. And what they told her was absolutely stunning. They responded, quote, we don't handle missing persons cases on the weekend. Call back on Monday morning during regular office hours. Which is so insane. This is the police. Oh, my God. Should have gone missing the next Monday. Yeah, what the hell? I mean, this was the 80s, but still, it's so shocking. What, then who's there to look for people on the weekends? Who do you call? No them? one. They don't do anything on the weekend. They just we're off. Sorry. God, Monday morning, insane. eight a.m. It's yeah. It is just completely whack. And this was just the first of many warning signs that the police in Canada and abroad were not going to find Duncan. The McPhersons knew that they were going to have to do it themselves, which is just infuriating and happens way too often. When they finally did get through, 
To the RCMP, they were assured that an Interpol bulletin would be sent out all over Central Europe. If Duncan tried to cross any borders, they'd be notified. If he ended up in some jail, they'd be notified. If he showed up at any airport, they would be notified. This bulletin would be sent to all the border crossings and police stations in the area, so authorities in Europe would be well aware of Duncan's disappearance, and they'd be on the lookout for him. At least that's what the McPhersons thought, because that's what police told them. But they would come to find out that this was not the case. The RCMP didn't send the bulletin as promised. Days turned into a week without any sign of Duncan, and the McPhersons couldn't sit in Canada and wait any longer for authorities to search for him. They knew they needed to try and find their son themselves. So on the 23rd, they flew to Europe. They came ready with 2,000 missing persons flyers in their suitcases, and they spent the next three weeks searching all over Central Europe for Duncan. They were starting from scratch with basically no leads to go on, and nobody really had any idea where Duncan went after the 8th. Once they arrived in Nuremberg, they went to the police station. The officer speaking to them did not seem at all concerned about their son. In fact, he told them not to worry. Duncan probably just met a beautiful girl and was out having the time of his life. Obviously, the McPhersons knew their son better than he did, and they knew that that was bullshit. Duncan had a beautiful girlfriend back home, and he never just go without contacting his family or anyone like this. Linda told the officer that Duncan had not cashed a traveler's check since August 7th. His response was, the girl must be rich as well. From there, they went to the Happy Holidays Travel Agency. This was the last location Duncan had used a traveler's check. The agent there recognized his photo and confirmed he made a deposit for an August 12th flight to Glasgow. Duncan was due back to pick up the plane ticket on the 11th, but he never showed. After that, the McPhersons went to his friend Roger Corco's house in Fusen, where Duncan had stayed on the 7th. Duncan's plans had been pretty fluid, and he told Roger that he was thinking of heading to Italy, maybe to see a friend in Bolzano or go windsurfing in Lake Garda. But he wasn't specific, meaning that he hadn't told anyone where he ended up staying that night. The only tip they had to go on was that he left Fusen on the 8th and was headed towards Austria and Italy. So that left the McPhersons with a huge area to search. So now they could make some guesses. They did know that Duncan was on a time crunch sightseeing-wise, so he would have had stayed in that region to make it back to Nuremberg in time. They left Nuremberg in a rental car and started heading south. When they reached Innsbruck, they decided to stop for the night. The next morning, when Linda opened the curtains, she was greeted with a gorgeous view. It looks absolutely stunning. The Austrian Alps are beautiful. Yeah, unreal. She knew instantly that Duncan was here. It was such a beautiful place. There was no doubt he would have stopped to stay at least one night. She had worried that Duncan had gone driving around in Innsbruck and lost control of the car, maybe, and crashed into a wooded area that concealed the car. So they went to the Innsbruck police, and once again, they had no idea who Duncan was or that he was missing. And once again, they had to explain what should have been sent out in the form of an Interpol notice. But the Innsbruck police were just about as helpful as the RCMP, unfortunately. The officer literally told them that nothing bad happens in Austria because the crime rate was so low, and Duncan was surely fine. He was a big, strong guy who could fend for himself. And the Tyrolean police were confident that Duncan was not in the area. They said that his car would have been found even if it was in a wreck because hikers were all over the area. They also said that an abandoned car would have been reported because in the mountain area, an abandoned car would have signaled that a hiker had been stuck in an accident somewhere. So they reassured them that they would notify all police stations in Turrell about Duncan. They'd be on the lookout, so Bob and Linda continued on to Lake Garda. Once they got to the Italian border, they asked about Duncan. And the border crossing agents, again, had no idea who Duncan was. 
and they hadn't been on the lookout for his car because they clearly hadn't gotten an Interpol bulletin that the RCMP had promised to file. And when they got to Balzano, the police there also didn't know about Duncan's disappearance. And Linda was incredibly frustrated, as you can imagine. She called the RCMP to ask why the bulletin hadn't been sent out, and the officer promised to file the report with Interpol again. They spent the whole day searching around Lake Garda, and they tried Switzerland on the 7th. And again, the border control in Switzerland had no idea who Duncan was. The bulletin still hadn't been sent out. And it was so frustrating having to try and explain over and over again what was going on, especially with the language barrier. So for days, they drove around Switzerland, pulling over to check wooded areas, making an exhausting amount of stops with no clear place to look. And then finally, on September 14th, they drove back to Innsbruck. Linda had a hunch that Duncan was still there. That day, they reached out to the Innsbruck police headquarters and spoke with Officer Heinz Dorn. And surprise, surprise, he also hadn't gotten the missing persons report. And the McPhersons were naturally very angry. They told Heinz that they needed all the Tyrolean police stations to be made aware of Duncan's disappearance. They wanted all hotel registers to check and see if Duncan had stayed there. And they wanted his photo to be broadcast in the news. But Heinz wasn't receptive. He said that Duncan had the right to privacy, so they couldn't put him on the news. And it would, quote, take an army to check all the hotel registers. So that wasn't going to happen either. Despite his parents flying thousands of miles over here to look for their son. And he's like, well, can't do anything. He's allowed to imagine how irritated you would be. I'm I'm sure the McPherson's were so pissed. I can't imagine how angry they must have felt. And the fact that nobody's getting this this bulletin no no one and no one seems to really care Mm -hmm. or think there's a problem unbelievable did you know that according to fbi data break-ins and property thefts spike this time of year burglars just love taking advantage of people traveling for the holidays i mean we've all seen home alone right the burglars come out when you leave for vacation that's why we love Simply Safe Home Security, and they're offering a holiday deal of up to 50% off any new system. So you can stay safe this season and keep those burglars at bay. Here's why I love Simply Safe. There's so many different reasons. I think Simply Safe is one of the most innovative security companies out there. I think their equipment and cameras are the best on the market, truly. I've I've tried every pretty much every security company out there, including the major ones, and they pale in comparison to what Simply Safe is doing. And I love Simply Safe because it's a more of a customized system and you can build it out however you want to, no matter what size home you have, even if you're in an apartment or I mean hell, you could probably secure your camper if you live in a camper with Simply Safe if you wanted to. But you can build it out for whatever size home you have. They have indoor, outdoor cameras. I'm a huge fan of Simply Safe's cameras. I think their cameras are some of the highest quality out there. Crystal clear picture. I love the outdoor ones specifically because it's so nice to be able to pop on your app, be able to take a look at what's going outside your home, whether it's late at night and you're feeling creeped out or you hear a sound, you can just pull up your app and see what's going on. Simply Safe is also powered by 24-7 professional monitoring. Forget this, less than a dollar a day. I mean, we're not even talking, we're talking cheaper than what you pay for a cup of coffee every day. You can get professional security monitoring from Simply Safe. They also have new 24-7 live guard protection and the smart alarm wireless indoor security camera. Monitoring agents are able to actually see what's going on and speak to the intruder. say, halt, please exit the premises before you get locked up. That's what they do. It's really amazing technology that 
is unique to Simply Safe. Also, satisfaction is backed by Simply Safe's money back guarantee. Try Simply Safe for 60 days risk free. And if you don't love it, they'll let you return the system for a full refund. So you really have nothing to lose. This holiday season, I highly recommend protecting your home and family with Simply Safe. And for a limited time, you can save up to 50% off any new system with a fast protect plan. Visit simplysafe.com slash milehire. That's simplysafe.com slash milehire because baby, there's no safe like Simply Safe. Once again, Linda and Bob had to do all the work themselves. First, they contacted the Innsbruck Hockey Club, and luckily the head coach was able to persuade their sponsor to buy an ad slot for the evening news, which on September 20th, Program Tyrol ran a broadcast notice about Duncan's disappearance. Next, Bob and Linda checked around at hostels themselves, since the police wouldn't do a damn thing. And sure enough, they found papers that showed Duncan had stayed at the Innsbruck Youth Hostel on the 8th. Linda went back to the police and asked if they had checked the hotels in town like they had asked. Of course, they told the McPhersons that they already checked all the hotels and hostels in Innsbruck and Duncan hadn't stayed there. But the reality is, is they hadn't actually bothered to look. Linda informed them that this obviously wasn't true and she basically told them they needed to check and see if he stayed the night of the 9th or the 10th as well. This is what the Innsbruck police had to say about this later on. This will honestly probably make you mad. How is it that a couple from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, can find out what an Innsbruck cop cannot? I have to admit this. If somebody, if somebody's missing, with a lot of missing cases, you don't have the time. You don't have the time to go to, to go into details with every case. But the, the, the parents, they had a, they had a lot of time to do to do this. By what? Don't have the time. I don't have the time, and they obviously have the time to do it. Ah. Oh, You'll probably hear more from this guy. This guy pisses me off to no end. He's awful. A contractor who'd recently worked on the Dubai Glacier parking lot watched Troll today on the 20th and saw the segment they did on Duncan. And he recognized the car immediately. It was the one he had seen sitting in the parking lot by the gondola. The employee called the local police who sent officers out to check on it. Sure enough, when they got there, the car was parked in the lot by the gondola. It had been sitting there for six whole weeks. Employees walked past it every day and it was never reported as abandoned or they never had it towed, or anything like that. And it would have been noticeable, especially when the lot emptied out, that the same car had been in the same spot and hadn't been touched in weeks. Anyways, the window of the car was left slightly cracked open, which allowed police to get inside, and in the glove compartment, they found Duncan's passport, his watch, and his traveler's check. In the back seat, they found his skates, his backpack, and a bag of rotted fruit. They also found a sealed letter Duncan wrote for his girlfriend and an audio cassette from a music shop in Innsbruck. The letter was written on August 7th. Duncan didn't discuss his plans before he was set to go to Scotland, but he did say he was heading there on the 12th. He thought his girlfriend Tara should come join him on the 19th, and he also mentioned buying a pair of Mephisto shoes in Nuremberg, but these shoes were not in his car. The McPherson said hope that once they found Duncan's car, it would lead them to Duncan. Maybe he was stuck somewhere on the mountain, and they hoped they'd be able to find him there easily. But they also worried that he had left the mountain potentially with someone who had nefarious intentions. The McPhersons knew that they had to stay close to the mountain now, so they went to the hostel at the base of the mountain to reserve a room. That Friday, September 22nd, they were checking into the Appart Hotel hostel when they were approached by someone. It was Walter Hinterhosel, the instructor Duncan had taken a lesson from on the 9th. Walter had brought his mom that day to go skiing, and he had seen the McPherson's car by chance in the parking lot. The McPhersons had taped Duncan's missing persons flyers to the back of their rental car, and when he saw the car, he immediately recognized Duncan. 
so he went into the hotel to tell whoever owned the car. He found the McPhersons at the front desk and introduced himself, and he probably assumed they were the owners of the car, given the fact that they spoke English and were Canadian, and he knew that of Duncan. And so the McPhersons had a flash of hope that Walter had info that could maybe lead them to Duncan. So they listened while Walter explained the events of August 9th onward. Walter told them that he had given Duncan a snowboarding lesson on the 9th, and he first met Walter at 10 a.m. that day at the snowboarding school. Duncan had already rented gear, snowboard, boots, and a gator, and the snowboard was a Durrett 1700, as Walter recalled. And Duncan didn't actually know that gear was included in the lesson price, so it was more expensive to do them both separately. And once Walter told him, he suggested they go back to the rental shop and ask them to give him the difference back. But unfortunately, they wouldn't. So Walter was nice enough to reduce the lesson price. They had a two-hour lesson. And like we said earlier, Duncan, you know, picked up on snowboarding pretty easily. And after the lesson, they had lunch. Duncan told Walter he wanted to do another lesson the next day if the weather was good. So they agreed to meet that next morning at the Apart Hotel. And again, like we mentioned earlier, Duncan's clothes had gotten wet during the lesson. So he went to the sports shop and bought a new purple sweatshirt. And he left his wet sweater, turtleneck, and leather belt out to dry on the radiator in Walter's office. Now, this is an important fact to remember. Then Duncan went off to snowboard by himself. Walter's girlfriend, Daniela, spotted Duncan riding the tow lift alone around 2.30 p.m. Walter spent the rest of the day teaching other lessons, but when he returned to his office, he saw that Duncan's clothes were still sitting on the radiator. And at first, he didn't think too much of it. You know, Duncan did say he wanted to take a lesson the next day, so he figured maybe he was going to pick up his clothes then. But when Duncan didn't show up the next day, Walter was a little surprised, but he figured, you know, he had made other plans. And as for the clothes, he assumed that Duncan would contact him and arrange pickup. Either that or he had just forgotten about it. And when weeks passed and he hadn't heard from Duncan, Walter took the clothes back to his apartment. He figured he'd give it to him eventually if Duncan ever reached out. The McPhersons thanked Walter for sharing what they knew. And at the time, they had no reason to doubt that he was anything less than sincere. So the next morning, a volunteer search team assembled to canvas the mountain. And many of these searchers had rappelling gear to check crevasses. Basically, since the ski run was on a glacier, crevasses naturally formed on the slope. Grooming machines are responsible for filling these crevasses with snow so that nobody falls in them. The crevasses on the slope are basically long holes that are usually not too deep, maybe a foot or so, but obviously they're a hazard and they have to be filled to prevent injuries. However, crevasses off the marked trails in the out-of-bounds areas weren't maintained. So these could open up to be pretty huge, some as deep as a 10-story building. And the worry was maybe Duncan had fallen into one of these crevasses. Hikers and skiers have fallen into these crevasses in the past and died. But again, there were still crevasses that opened on the slope, including a region of them on the Shawfell Farna that usually opened up in August. Since they were covered by snow, they formed these sort of ice bridges. But in the summer heat, that would melt the snow. So sometimes skiers would go over these ice bridges and they would give way. The skiers would basically fall right into these voids. So, so scary. And it was like the ground would just, you know, open up beneath you and you fall into them. Terrifying. And just one year before Duncan went missing, a skier actually had fallen into one of these crevasses on the slope. But of course, the police in Innsbruck never informed the McPhersons of this incident. Now, here's a clip from a skier who fell into a crevasse at the Stubai Glacier talking about his experience. 
Ja. What? Habe ich den... All at once, the ground disappeared beneath my feet. Das ist wie, wenn man auf dem Kanal... It was like standing on a manhole cover that gives way. Es hat sich alles verdunkelt. Everything got dark. Die Eiswände sind an mir The ice walls flew past me. Alles wurde dumm. It got quiet. And when you look down, what did you see? Dark, dunkel. Dark, dark. I looked once down to the right and it was dark. So dark, no one could see down, even though he could see the ski lift above. Then Torque remembered he had a cell phone and it worked. Did you think at that moment, that's it? I, I could die here on this yeah, glacier? Yeah. Yes, I feared for my life. I feared for my life. Look at my arms. When I talk, I get goosebumps. I see. The fall was frightening, but what happened next was equally disturbing. Oh, man. And I stood there with the Alpine rescue workers at the top of the crevasse. One of them was there with his snow grooming machine. He was filling in the crevasse. The other two were standing next to me. They said, you were lucky. And then they said, we're not reporting this to the press. Do you understand? Mm, that's suspicious. They don't want, they obviously don't want any news getting out to the public that the mountain's potentially dangerous. No, of course not. Looks, makes them look horrible. Anyways, once the McPhersons reached the top of the gondola, they were pretty surprised to see the slope. It was the only one that had been open on August 9th, and it was basically just a bunny hill with a rope tow. And it seemed very hard to believe that Duncan could have gotten lost on it. While the search team canvassed the glacier, the McPhersons tried to piece together Duncan's last few days. They found out that at some point, Duncan had called Ron Dixon, the Dundee Tigers owner. Ron wasn't totally sure when this call took place, but he was, quote, 90% sure it took place on the 10th and 10% sure it took place on the 9th. So this would mean that Duncan made it off the mountain and potentially went somewhere else. There was also a parking attendant working at the glacier who was a, quote, very exact person. And this parking attendant claimed that Duncan's car had not been in the lot before September 1st. The search team checked the glacier for days, hiking around to different spots and rappelling down crevasses, but nobody found Duncan or any more of his belongings. The search was called off on September 26th as snow was falling at higher elevations, meaning it was too dangerous to search. Linda called a man named Ian Thompson at the Canadian Embassy to ask what their response to this was. She also wanted to know if they had traced Duncan's call to Ron Dixon. Ian told Linda that the Canadians hadn't been able to trace the call, but they were still trying. Then he gave Linda some very unsolicited advice, and he said, quote, I think you and your family should get on with your lives. Life is for the living. Isn't that insane? How could you say These that to people are to heartless, man. Like, this is very inconvenient. Sons, we're, we're clearly not going to find him, so it's best to just get on with life. And to say life is for the living? Yeah. God, that's fucked up. But this was pretty much it. They didn't know where he'd gone, so it felt like they were looking for a needle in a haystack. They searched the ski area extensively, but found no sign of him besides the car. On September 27th, Linda was struck with an idea. Duncan would have had to return his gear on the 9th by 4 p.m. when the lifts closed, so they would know if Duncan made it down the mountain based on whether or not he had returned his gear. She called someone at the External Affairs back in Ottawa that day with her concerns, and he told her that he'd look into it, but of course, Linda knew that she could only rely on herself and Bob to get this done. So on the 30th, the McPhersons visited the gear shop to ask for their rental logs. They assumed this would be a simple task for the employees, but this was apparently not the case. The young man behind the counter said the shop had already thrown out their log from August, and he didn't remember ever seeing Duncan. Plus, the worker was certain that no snowboards were missing. Now, the next part we're going to talk about is something Linda wouldn't find out until 20 years later, but on that same day, 
Council Thompson from the Canadian Embassy in Vienna sent a cable to External Affairs in Ottawa, and the message said that the ski instructor, Walter, was 100% certain that Duncan had returned his snowboard that day. The McPhersons were never informed of this, even though they talked to Thompson multiple times after the 30th. So why did Walter not mention this to the McPhersons the first time they talked to him? How was he 100% certain? It seems logical that Duncan would have returned the board at the end of the day when he was done snowboarding, and if he did, then why wouldn't he have gone to Walter's office to pick up his clothes? Walter said he was 100% certain, but really the only way for him to be that sure is if he saw Duncan return the gear with his own two eyes. If he heard it from someone else that Duncan returned the gear, well, that's secondhand info, so obviously he couldn't be 100% certain. If he saw Duncan return the gear, why the hell did he not mention this to the McPhersons? And that's just such a critical detail to leave out. And why would he not go up to Duncan and say, hey, don't forget your stuff in my office? We'll talk more about this later, but we wanted to raise these initial suspicions now. Canadian searchers call off their search and plan to head home on October 15, 1989. Bob and Linda decide to leave Europe the day before. They vowed to be back when the snow melted to continue looking for Duncan. They were going home, but definitely not giving up. They knew it was most likely that Duncan had died. But of course, without a body and a clear explanation of what had happened to him, they held out hope that maybe, just maybe, he was out there somewhere. Regardless, they needed to know what happened to him and bring him home, dead or alive. Months went by and they heard nothing, but they finally got a tip from a civilian in Germany who told them about a disoriented English-speaking man doing a hut tour in Stubai, and they hoped that this could have been Duncan. But as it turns out, this was an American with a case of amnesia. At one point, they received a letter from an investigator in Austria, and the letter said police believe Duncan accidentally fell into a crevasse off piste, which basically means outside of the marked ski boundaries, and he subsequently died. He also stated that Duncan's snowboard and boots had been returned to the gear shop. They spent the entire summer of 1990 searching the Stubai Valley with Duncan's dog Jake, but they found nothing. And for years, the McPhersons took extended trips to Tyrol to try and find Duncan, but all that time passed and there was no sign of him despite their best efforts. They once got a tip that Duncan had been spotted in a Greek prison, but once they found out the inmate was a smoker, those hopes were dashed, as Duncan hated smoking and he would have never picked up a cigarette. Over the years, more scattered tips came in. Many of them were from psychics who claimed to communicate telepathically with Duncan. Some were supposed sightings around Innsbruck, but none of them panned out. Are you somebody who makes that dreaded trip to the post office once a week, once a month, or even once a day? Maybe you have an Etsy shop or you have an online business. And so shipping packages is just part of the daily routine, but you're making that long drive over there, waiting in line to get everything shipped. Well, save time, save money, and get your life back with stamps.com. Stamps.com has been indispensable for millions of businesses, including ours. We love stamps.com for so many different reasons. The simplicity of it, you don't need any special equipment. You've got your computer and a regular printer and you can start printing postage today. Not only that, they'll send you a free digital scale, which completes the setup. You can even go into their dashboard and schedule a pickup so you don't even have to leave your home or office. Especially this time of year, if you go to the post office, it's probably didn't take you an hour to mail something. So do it right from the comfort of your home or office with stamps.com plus you get huge carrier discounts up to 84% off USPS and UPS rates to help your bottom line and it helps your wallet 
Plus, Stamps.com automatically tells you your cheapest and fastest shipping options. You can even order shipping and mailing supplies, labels, and even printers from their supply store. We love Stamps.com, and if you have not taken advantage of their services yet, then now is the time. Give your business the gift of Stamps.com so your mailing and shipping is covered this holiday season. Sign up with promo code MILEHIRE for a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. There's no long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click that microphone at the top of the page, and enter code MILEHIRE. 14 years passed, and Duncan remained missing. That is until the summer of 2003. It was the hottest summer on record in Turl. In fact, it was so hot and so much of the snow had melted that the Stubai Glacier had to close for skiing for the summer. And then on July 18th, a Stubai Glacier employee noticed a yellow piece of fabric sticking out of the snow. The spot was on the Schaffel Ferna slope within the ski boundaries of the Stubai Glacier. And as the snow continued to melt, it was discovered that the yellow fabric was part of a torn raincoat. And the next day, the McPhersons got a call from a friend. He told them that he was watching the news and saw that Duncan had been found. They were pulling his body out of a crevasse on the Stubai Glacier. And the news reported incorrectly that the discovery site was off-piste 120 meters east of the ice yoke tow lift. And at the discovery site, Stubai workers found Duncan's body, his boots, and the snowboard that he had been using. Duncan's body had been frozen with his arms and legs amputated. That's right, people. Three limbs in total with one arm still attached. And of course, as soon as they found out, Bob and Linda made plans to immediately fly to Austria and retrieve Duncan's body. And they wanted an autopsy performed. And once they got there, they were told to visit Dr. Walter Robble at the Institute of Forensic Medicine. Dr. Robble would be the one examining Duncan's body. Linda took a liking to him immediately. Dr. Robble was young and a lot less cold than police had been, and he reminded her of Duncan, so she trusted him. So Linda asked him if he would be performing the autopsy, and he said he wouldn't because the prosecutor's office hadn't ordered one. The prosecutor was satisfied with the conclusion that Duncan had accidentally fallen into a crevasse and died. And of course, Linda asked how Duncan had died after he fell into the crevasse, and Dr. Robble said that it was likely a non-asphytic suffocation, a.k.a suffocation where the air supply is cut off rather than just oxygen. So basically, he said after he fell in, he was covered with snow and he was able to breathe for a little bit, but eventually he suffocated. Robble said that this was not a painful death and that many people who were rescued just before dying of suffocation reported feeling warm and comfortable. Supposed to comfort his parents? Like, what on earth? I guess that's what they were trying to do. And maybe it would in some case. I don't know. But, but they already have their hunches, you know what I mean? Yeah, and like of course. You're, you're trying to dismiss every all this investigation yeah. they've just done. Yeah. And explain it away as like, oh, well, Elisa's death was warm and fuzzy, basically. Yeah. And Dr. Robble told them that an autopsy may not reveal the cause of death anyway, given that the body was in ice for so long. And when the McPhersons tried to get an autopsy ordered, the prosecutor's office refused even after finding his body in that condition with several amputated limbs. It's just... In the middle of the slope. Insane. Insane. What? However, Dr. Robble did offer to perform a CT scan, which might lend to some clues as to how Duncan died. When Linda and Bob were shown photos of the spot that Duncan was found, they were shocked. It was on piste in the middle of the ski slope, not out of bounds. And the news had misreported that very crucial fact. 
Duncan hadn't gone off piste. His body went into a crevasse 40 meters uphill from where he was found. So over the years, the glacial movement actually caused the body to move down the slope slowly over time. Dr. Robble said that the injuries to his body and dismemberment were caused by glacial flows. He actually tried to sell them that idea. But there were things in the case that clearly did not add up. And here's one Canadian forensic anthropologist talking about Duncan's injuries and where they may have come from. What would it take to break those bones? For the femur, at least 1,800 to 2,500 pounds of torsion and pressure. That's the pulling and the twisting. And that's not going to occur in ice flow. So this didn't make sense to you? No. Uh, there's multiple trauma, and the joint surfaces, based on the radiographs and photographs that I saw, would indicate that there was a violent fall, yes, but also perhaps some contact with machinery, just simply because of the, the, the bone ends, the shearing, the jagged ends. It's almost like a traumatic dismemberment. Machinery. What kind of machinery could have been out there on the slopes? So obviously, investigators overlooked key discrepancies and odd things in this case, and that includes the fact that Duncan's Saskatchewan driver's license was not found in his wallet or on him. However, his credit cards were still there. The rental shop likely required something to keep as collateral for the gear rental, so Duncan probably gave them his license. Evidently, he never got it back, meaning someone still had it and would have thrown it away. The ski boots and gator he was found with belonged to the rental shop, so he would have needed to return those, too, in order to get his ID back, and not just the snowboard. Before we mention that Duncan wrote in a letter that he bought new shoes in Nuremberg, these shoes were not recovered from his belongings, and he wore those shoes from the parking lot up to the gear shop where he rented boots. That means he changed out of these boots and had to have left them in a storage locker there, but these shoes were never recovered, which means someone had to have gotten rid of them and he would have needed those street shoes to get down the mountain via the gondola. So definitely very suspicious. The gear shop later said that they never had any Durette brand boards to rent in the first place, so Duncan couldn't have rented the gear from them. So where did he get the board from then? Walter was 100% certain that Duncan returned the gear. Maybe that's because he's right, he did see that with his own two eyes, and Duncan indeed returned the gear, probably after lunch when he bought the sweatshirt. But he kept riding on his own after lunch, so with what board? And where did he get it from? He was using a Durette, and if the shop is correct that they never had them, then he must have been using a different board from a rental shop and switched to the Durette, which he had to have gotten from somewhere else. Of course, it wasn't his, so whose was it? Well, the answer is Walter's. After lunch, Walter told him to return the gear and lend him a different board. But why? And if this is true, why wouldn't he have told the McPhersons this? Duncan did not make it down the mountain that day, and he couldn't have returned the board to Walter. Are we supposed to believe that at the end of the day... Duncan did not return to give back a no doubt expensive snowboard and Walter just shrugged it off. Here's another bit of interesting information. The first time Walter met the McPhersons, it was by chance as he was taking his mother skiing on Friday, September 22nd, 1989. And that same day, Bob McPherson took a photo of Duncan's car in the empty resort parking lot. In 2009, author John Leake, who was writing a book on Duncan's case, brought up an important point that the McPhersons had never considered before. He said, quote, if the mountain had been open for skiing on Friday, September 22nd, 1989, the parking lot would have been full. Two slope workers said they had to free Duncan's body from the hard blue ice using the snow grooming machine. But this machine is entirely unsuited for that purpose. A chainsaw would have been a much better option as using the expensive grooming machinery would seriously damage it. Coincidentally or not, one of these two slope workers who worked on the excavation of Duncan's body had been working on the slope 
the day Duncan disappeared. By the way, Shubai Glacier employees were basically the ones cleaning up Duncan's remains that day, which is just absolutely absurd. The only police presence at the Discovery site was a helicopter pilot, and when Bob and Linda visited the death site, Bob actually found some of Duncan's bones that the employees had left behind. So police, medical examiner's corner, did not even get involved in this at all. They had the employees of the ski resort remove his remains, which is baffling to me. Duncan's body was found with one red ski glove, a pair of blue cross-country ski gloves, and a blue work glove. Duncan did not go snowboarding with three pairs of gloves, obviously, especially not cross-country gloves or a work glove, and he was neither cross-country skiing nor working. So who did these gloves belong to? The worker who first discovered Duncan's body said the work glove belonged to him. However, the glove has never been tested for blood or DNA. These key bits of information suggest that someone knows more than they're letting on. But if Duncan truly got lost and had an accident, why cover that up? Why did nobody bother to search unless they knew where he was and that he was dead? And if that's the case, then what happened to him? This brings us to the examination of Duncan's clothes, his body, the snowboard, and the thing that most likely killed him, the resort's snow grooming machines. A plastic card found in Duncan's wallet was found with a hole punched in it that had to have come from some sort of metal tool, not glacial movement. His clothes, like his raincoat and sweater, were absolutely shredded. And this does not look at all like shredding caused by glacial movement. No, this had to be done mechanically. And the snowboard was found in rough shape too, with damage consistent of snowcat treads. There are areas where the plastic coating or laminate is just ripped away, exposing the wood and paint underneath. It had been exposed to ice and water for a very long time, meaning that even if it's accepted that the damage came from a snow cat, it can't be explained away by just saying, oh, that came from when we extracted it. No way. That's insane no. to even Ridiculous. suggest that. I mean, so, it's very obvious by the pictures here. Oh, for sure. For sure. The damage to the board shows that it was cut by something crescent-shaped, and the left side of the board shows three metal cuts, all made at the same angle. These cuts are all spaced six inches apart exactly. Marks in his body were consistent with treads of a snow cat. The amputated leg had markings that looked like treads from the grooming machine. This includes a row of gouges parallel to the amputation. Dr. Robble assumed those and the limb amputations came from glacial flows. That's right. He actually said that. And he apparently based this on past glacial corpses that he had worked with, not an autopsy. And he had never sent over those CT scans to the McPhersons, only some x-rays. Now, Duncan's left hand was also severed via a cut that looks very linear. Parts of his limbs look gouged with tendons torn out as if they had gone through a rotating machinery that broke and twisted the bones and joints at the same time. Absolutely brutal. Now, these injuries are also dark colored, indicating that they happened long before the body was taken out of the ice. Then there's the boots and also the issue of the rentals. Duncan had been using hard ski boots with his snowboard, not the softer boots that are specifically designed for snowboards. These boots were marked by the rental shop. The board was not. Dr. Robble performed an examination, but no autopsy. And he concluded that Duncan fell into the crevasse and died. But there was a lot he missed, and that seems to be a pattern for Dr. Robble. And starting with Duncan's case, he assumed he died of asphyxia, but didn't confirm this via examination. He didn't consider the damage to the clothing, the snowboard, or the boots. 
In fact, it was Bob who had to ask Dr. Robble about the snowboard damage back in 2003. Robble contacted Stubai Glacier, who told them that the damage was sustained while they were extracting the board from the ice. They said that they tried pulling on the snowboard to pull it out, and it broke into pieces, and then they ran it over with the groomer. Bob thought this was very suspicious from the get-go, because clearly that's not an accurate description of the damages. Again, the weathering to the board shows that the damages had already been there for quite a long time. Finally, there's a cable. A cable or cord was found wrapped snugly around Duncan's unclothed leg. This was not a shoelace or anything like that, and it didn't come from anything Duncan had on him. And the fact that it was tied against his unclothed and injured leg meant that it was placed there post-injury. So how did this cord get there? This cord was removed by Dr. Robble or his assistant before the McPhersons viewed it. It was present in one of the photographs taken during the examination, but not in others. When Linda asked Robble about this cord, he said he didn't know what it was. It is possible that this cord was polypropylene baling twine, and this twine is used to hold bales of hay together, and ski resorts often use straw on the slopes when snow levels are low. So it's possible that this twine was caught in a grooming machine and wrapped around Duncan's leg when it went into it, or the twine was used to hold his remains together to transport them to the crevasse. Or maybe someone used a twine to pull his leg from the machine. All we know is that if there's an innocent explanation for this twine, Robble didn't mention it or look into it any further. So what did all this lead to? From the looks of it, it's very obvious a cover-up. And the most likely explanation for Duncan's death did appear to be an accident. It just wasn't a fall into a crevasse. The most likely scenario is this. Duncan went snowboarding by himself and suffered a leg injury. We're going to explain one theory as to how this initial injury happened. But Duncan was outboarding. Obviously, he was relatively new to snowboarding and inexperienced. And another bad thing is you don't want to be wearing ski boots on a snowboard because ski boots are rigid and it doesn't allow your feet to move the way you need to on a snowboard. The temperature was just above freezing and the weather was foggy with drizzling rain, making visibility low and likely clearing out most of the skiers. This weather may have caused ice over a crevasse to break, opening it up. But this doesn't mean that like this huge crater or hole opened up on the slope. This was probably a crevasse that was something like a few feet deep, but as Duncan was riding down the slope, he struck it and the front end of the board snagged the crevasse, sending him flying into the ground in front of the crevasse. It also may have dislodged one of the ski boots from the board, leaving the weight of the board and the angle of the hit to badly twist his leg, which this may have caused the femur break we see in the radiology scan here. Or it may have just been a painful ligament injury. Either way, it would have hurt a lot and potentially immobilized Duncan. Since he couldn't move, he waited for help to come and find him. Duncan was found not wearing his ski boots, but his left ski boot was not damaged, although his left leg and foot were damaged extensively. The left boot liner was also damaged, so how did this happen? And the answer might be this. He took the ski boots off to alleviate the pain. Anybody who skis will tell you that ski boots are hard and very uncomfortable to wear. They can also interfere with circulation if they're too tight. So Duncan probably took them off, especially if he was injured, but he took out the liner of the boot and kept it on for warmth. He was also wearing a cotton sweatshirt. Cotton wicks away heat from the body, and again, it was just about freezing and drizzling that day, so it's possible Duncan died of hypothermia while he waited for help. And further down the mountain, the Stubai Glacier employees were gearing up to finish out the day. That included the groomers who hopped on their grooming machines and made their way up the mountain. They may not have done one final check of the mountain with ski patrol to make sure that everyone was off the slope. Instead, they just assumed everyone was gone. Grooming machines are essentially these big tractor-sized vehicles that travel up the mountain and groom the snow into an orderly pattern called corduroy. 
And so let's briefly go over the parts of these grooming machines. In the front is the long metal blade. It's serrated at the bottom and it breaks up the coarse snow and pulverizes it into soft powder. The tracks of the groomer break it up further. Finally, the tiller shapes the snow into the finished corduroy using metal grooves that act like a comb. The tiller is wider than the tractor cab part itself. The theory is, as the grooming machine made its way up the mountain, it hit Duncan. He may have tried to get out of the way or he was unconscious and couldn't move out of the way, but the driver may have tried to swerve around him, accidentally sending the tiller flying right into him. And it's likely that his leg went into the locking brackets of the machine, aka the treads that help pull the machine forward. Either way, his body went into the machine and became stuck. If he was still alive, God forbid, conscious by this point, he would have quickly died from shock. The driver may have been intoxicated when they ran into Duncan or was not following proper safety procedures. The employee may have panicked and didn't report the incident out of fear of being charged with manslaughter. The initial shock itself after seeing that scene could have been enough to put that driver into a psychological paralysis. And so maybe in a state of shock and not knowing what to do, they contacted their superior. And that superior may have helped with what came next, the cover. The snowcat driver, either acting alone or someone's help, took Duncan's body and hid it in a crevasse. The incident remained a secret and the identity of the snowcat driver or potential accomplices remains a mystery to this day. They chose to hide Duncan's body in a crevasse because they knew how crevasse accidents were treated there. There were bad press and the usual MO for resorts was to blame the skier. Barely do the investigation and call it a day so people wouldn't be searching there. So why the cover-up, you might ask? Well, two reasons, of course. Reason one could be that the driver didn't want to go to jail, but a cover-up likely happened for reasons even beyond that. Could have been to protect the Stubai Glacier Resort and the tourism ski industry in Innsbruck. Because, I mean, imagine the media just circus that would come out of this and just, oh, you know, yeah. somebody's brutally run over by a snowcat. And, I mean, it would not be good for tourism, that's for sure. Let me tell you about my new doctor. She is amazing. I've already sent Janelle to her. I've sent my sister to her and one of my friends and everyone has had a great experience with her. And I found her thanks to ZocDoc because about a month and a half ago, I needed to get in to see someone quickly. And the doctor I was seeing wasn't able to get me in. So I jumped to the ZocDoc app, which I've been using for years and love. And I found my new doctor and she was available within like two days. It was amazing. ZocDoc is a free app where you can find amazing doctors and book appointments online. We're talking about booking appointments with thousands of top-rated patient-reviewed doctors and specialists. You can filter specifically for ones who take your insurance or are located near you and treat almost every condition you're searching for. And these docs all have verified reviews from actual real patients, not bots. And the average wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is just between 24 and 48 hours. Yep, that's it. Sometimes you can even score same-day appointments. And once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately with just a few app taps. No more waiting awkwardly on hold with the receptionist. I love ZocDoc. If you're not using it, you're missing out, friends. I have found so many amazing medical professionals through ZocDoc that I wouldn't have otherwise found. So get started at ZocDoc.com slash milehigher and download the ZocDoc app for free and then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc.com slash milehigher, ZocDoc.com slash milehigher. And this would obviously be a very bad look for the resort and can't really be spun into a way that mitigates reputational damage. Basically, they can't blame the skier and then just move on from it. 
The man who founded the resort is and was known as the godfather of Shubai Valley. The ski industry and the resort wield a lot of influence in the area, and they provide numerous people with jobs, and they bring tourists to the town, which shops and hotels and others depend upon, and their owners are wealthy, influential, and powerful. I found a report back in 2005 um, that said that the ski resort actually brought in an annual revenue of $34 million and employs up to 300 people. So, holy shit. That's bad huge press for this would area. be yeah. bad news for them. Mm-hmm. Well, especially a snowcat running somebody over on the slope. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's not a good look. It just shows that whoever these employees are don't know what they're doing. Or it's even worse beyond that. There's some you know bad apples working for this resort. So it's pretty easy to do the math. They'd cover it up, tell employees they didn't see anything, tell them not to talk about it, get rid of the logs, get rid of his clothes, his ideas, shoes, keep the car there because what else could they do? Don't report the car though, you know, to buy yourself time. Let the snow fall and melt and cover up the body. When they do find the car, they won't find the body because who would look in the middle of the ski slope? It's accepted that they went off trail and they essentially blamed him for going off the trail and getting himself lost and killed, which he never did. And if when they do find the body, pray it's been long enough to conceal the evidence. His body was in a crevasse. Clearly, he fell in and was buried under the snow. As plenty of people die hiking or skiing and aren't found. So case closed, nothing else to see here. But, I mean, the body speaks for itself. The, the damage and destruction and the cuts to his body do not indicate that this was just glacial flow. Clearly, he was run over by machinery. But here's what the Innsbruck police had to say about this theory and the lack of investigation. Get ready to get pissed off again. Main questions, and then they, they could have been cleared. The deputy chief of criminal investigation is unmoved. Is this a problem that the investigation just assumed it was an accident? Is there some bias towards the, the operator? That, that could be the perception from outside. The ski operator, what, what, is he, what, what could be his interest? There could be third-party liability, but you presume that it, it was Duncan's fault and nobody else. Yeah. What do you say to yeah. Duncan McPherson's parents who, who just can't let this go? For us, uh, the case, the case is closed. The body has been found. The missing person turned up and, um, and his name was, uh, was deleted from, from the system of course now. And for us, uh, the case is, is solved. That's it. Wow. It's got to be the worst. Terrible. Police employee I've ever seen. He couldn't even try to give a fuck. Did he even see the evidence? I, I mean, think I, I think, I think that they're just in the business of like, well, at this point we fucked up, so it's going to look bad if we yeah. admit that we didn't do anything. And this guy's clearly got an ego, so it doesn't surprise me. Sadly, the McPhersons spent most of their retirement savings trying to find Duncan and figure out what happened to him, and it took them decades. But they do finally have an answer as to what happened to their son. Duncan's body was flown back to Canada and cremated so he could be properly laid to rest. Linda takes comfort in knowing that her son lived a full life, and he died doing what he loved, adventuring outdoors. The McPhersons just wish the road to truth wasn't filled with lies and deceit and ego. In 2012, a book about Duncan's case was published. It was written by that author, John Leake, entitled Cold, A Long Time, an Alpine Mystery. Great book to read if you want to really dive into this on a whole deeper level. If you ask me, the McPhersons deserve some sort of compensation for the decades of misery they've been put through. At least. They drain their whole retirement savings to, to 
solve this case basically without any help from not only the authorities over in Austria, but the Canadian authorities as well. They didn't really yeah. do anything either. I mean, pretty much everyone in this case sucked. It's just, and it's such a shame that it took so long, so many years for them to find out. Oh, the agony that they've had to go happened. through every day. I mean, and it, getting the answers doesn't, well, some of the answers. Well, they don't even have all the answers, no, right? No, they don't. But I'm sure getting some of them have helped a little, but it's like that hole, that void will never yeah. be Yeah, what filled. happened to him? And, you know, wondering what his last moments were like, ah, I can't even imagine. Terrible. But there's at least one person out there who is responsible for Duncan's death. And to this day, the identity of that person or the potential people involved in this cover-up are still a mystery. But no doubt, someone knows something. And hopefully one day, that individual or others will come forward and clear their guilty conscience for the sake of Linda and Bob. That's what's so crazy to think about, that someone knows, saw this, did this. Yeah, it's just clear somebody did it. this. Yeah. How do you live with yourself? I don't know. How do you sleep at night? Yeah, I guess the only hope is that they feel guilty enough to one day come forward. But because I mean, at this point, it's like, I doubt they will. Th this could really be a grand conspiracy, mm -hmm. if you think about it, because the operator of the machinery or the snowcat may have done that, you know, may have ran over his body, then brought it to his superior. And then his superior's like, nope, we're not going to do this. And then maybe they even alerted the authorities about what had happened. And the authorities were like, just yeah. cover it up. Like, we don't need this. You know, we don't want this breaking to the news. This is a, yeah. you know, Canadian as well. So it's, it's going to make international news. And so they were like, just let's cover it up. And this is the story we're going to tell. I mean, who knows how deep this, this, corruption runs yeah but. it definitely could have gone up the chain like that or it could be just that person yeah that stayed with them and they covered it up on their own to protect themselves i don't know what though. do you think is more I, I think there's a lot of people at this resort that know about this because if you think about it his body was mangled by this thing and the amount of like blood and, mm -hmm. and fluids and i mean just this the scene must have been Ugh. just horrendous so there's no way like it's snow too so it sticks out it, like how did they they would have had to cover this up somehow even if they moved his body and like put him in a crevasse they would have had to cover up the all the blood from from his body being mangled through the machine how they clean up the machine and hide the evidence of his yeah, his remains no, in the true. machine you know like there's got to have been multiple people at this resort that were involved in this not just one individual because one individual and, and think about the individual that actually did it too. He probably would have been t in too much shocked to even realize what had happened to even continue. But like, all right, now I've got to clean the machine. I've got to bury his body. I've got to hide my tracks. Like he probably alerted somebody else and the whole resort probably knows. Hell, the owner of the resort probably even knows. And they just maybe, were like, let's, maybe. yeah, let's cover it up because this is bad, bad for business. I agree. That's most likely the case. However, I mean, I think it is possible for him to have covered it up with the machinery and the fact that the machinery wasn't checked for so long. It's not like you'd have to do that good of a cleanup job if it wasn't looked at right away. So it could have been just one person. Maybe. I find it very hard to believe one person did all no, this. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think most likely multiple people are involved, but it is possible that it was just one. I do tend to agree with the the story, you know, the kind of the version of events where he was an inexperienced snowboarder. 
And the other thing too, ski boots on a snowboard, like I'm a snowboarder and I know that I, I couldn't imagine trying to snowboard with ski boots on because of just they're so rigid. Cause like snowboarding is all about like bending your mm-hmm. legs and like being able to lean in your boots, but with ski boots, you can't do yeah. that. You you're like really stuck, stuck in place, right? So it all it would take is like one little bump in the slope to send yourself flying. And if there's these like two, three foot crevasses just in the middle of the slope, you hit one of those. I mean, I've eaten eaten shit hard on a snowboard before off just hitting like a little chunk of ice on the slope and I go flying. So I can only imagine if you hit like a two foot hole in the slope, how bad that would hurt hurt your legs. Cause that's the thing with snowboards too, is that you're strapped to your board versus skis. If you hit something, you're just gonna fly off of your skis, which right. is kind of nice. Right. And you know, but with a snowboard, you're slamming the ground. You're you're going with your board. And then it's gonna make it so much worse that he's wearing ski, ski boots. boots. Yeah. Just like his leg he definitely got a serious leg injury. And then I think he was just he couldn't move. He couldn't do anything. And probably the weather conditions played into effect that day. Maybe the snowcat operator couldn't really see what was on the slope and just or just wasn't paying attention or wasn't, or paying wasn't attention. intoxicated. Yeah. I mean, Who knows? That's I mean, what's so frustrating is so many. There are so many possibilities of what could have happened. I just hope God, I really hope he was unconscious or I before know. he got run over yeah. by a snowcat. Yeah. Holy oh, shit. God, that's a horrible way to, to go. I can't imagine much that would be worse i mean that's just awful i do want to just say that linda and bob are amazing parents and linda's intuition throughout this case is unbelievable like she had a premonition wakes up in the middle of the night basically a premonition of her son something horrible happened gives me chills and it's their just their steadfastness and determination to find their son and i'm I'm thankful, despite all of this, that they were able to find him. And at least they know that he's, you know, they yeah. don't have this, is he alive, is he dead? They know to some extent what happened. Yeah. And they're able to, you know, kind of close, close that part of their life. But I think they can imagine the anger and the resentment they have towards that ski resort, though. And I don't think you'd ever, like, really get full closure no. to be able to move on, you know, just the impact it would have on your life. Yeah, it's it's really inspiring the love between yeah. parent and child in that situation. Basically, gave gave everything that they had yeah. to to make this happen, and mm-hmm. it ultimately ultimately paid off. At least finding him, but yeah, yeah. Without them doing that, who knows? I just wish there's more you could do to like hold the authorities accountable. No, it's so frustrating. There's no account, and they just like they're like, yeah, it's solved. Yep, that's moving it. on. Don't what care do about anything else. Yeah. Bye. God. Sickening. So many cases like this too. Just irritating at the end of the day. Like what can be done? Yeah. I'm curious, Janelle, do you think it was a cover up with multiple people or do you think it could have just been one person? I honestly go back and forth. I think the more likely scenario is more than one person just by the amount of people that work on the slope and... I think it would have been pretty hard for one person to cover this whole thing up mm-hmm. all this time. Um, but I mean, I guess it's possible that it's just one person they know. Yeah. Crazy that they're out there or multiple people. I guess, though, the only reason maybe I would lean to one person is because 
Does that make keeping it a secret easier? I think yes, because if multiple people know, like the chances of someone slipping up or somehow getting out is probably higher than just one person who's keeping the secret. That's what I was. So I guess if you look too. at it in that light, um, yeah. I mean, I don't I think don't it's know. like a ton of people, but, but I think even it like, could be a small circle. Yeah, of but even if it was like three Two to four three. people, like that's mm-hmm. you better hope those people can keep a good secret versus just one. I don't yeah. Know. Know. well who knows they might have had other shit like this happen there yeah Maybe. there could be other deaths at this resort that were classified as accidents that weren't yeah that's definitely possible i don't know something is just my intuition is telling me it was just one person or maybe two but and then we'll the, probably never know well and then let's not forget the sheer i mean this could be a totally different case had dr robble actually done something and actually conducted an yeah. autopsy the fact he didn't too. do that was, it was shocking. And then digging into it further, there's other cases that Robble's done where individuals were, he ruled them as accidents and they turned out to have been stabbed. And one other individual had been raped and that was never, never examined. Why do you get into this field? So just sheer incompetence. You don't care. Yeah. But I'll never understand. Like, isn't that the purpose of your job to like, discover what happened and if you're just like yeah don't you have any passion well, for this paid interest you know what i mean maybe he's getting paid by, by yeah, somebody possible, you know what i mean there's how, corruption how, everywhere. how you think that cover-up went never know you never know these days or back then so well i just have to say duncan seemed like an incredible guy yeah, what a loss i know seemed like a really good person and god it's just it's unbelievably tragic he was so close to like going and starting this whole new chapter in his life which could have been incredible for him being a hockey coach and you know living in scotland and doing really cool things and and then his girlfriend you know his girlfriend never got to see him again too i can't imagine how she dealt with this i mean poor thing it's horrible well we want to know what you all think of course do you think this was a cover-up do you think multiple people were involved or just one person and let us know your thoughts on just how botched all of this was. Yeah, or do you believe the official narrative that this was an accident? I doubt it. This I is the mile higher audience. Yeah, there's I they mean, ain't buying that shit. Better not be. No, definitely not. But anyway, that is gonna be it for us today. Um, real quick again, just want to remind you guys, documentary is coming out next week. The nineteenth. Next Tuesday. Next Tuesday, the nineteenth. Be sure to watch that. Um, 530 days on the true crime with kendall ray channel um that is going to be it for us today you guys thank you for joining us we will be back next week but until then keep on taking your mind a mile higher Bye.